Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second episode of Cinema's Soft Underbelly. I am your host, Eugene Weaver, and uh, today I'm going to be talking about a couple movies that I thoroughly enjoy. I've watched them numerous times, and I wanted to share them with you. Now, on my first episode, I, uh, I introduced myself, I introduced what the show is going to be about, and I, uh, I, I gave some of my favorite movies of all time. And I was going to continue that, but I thought, you know, I'm going to probably sprinkle that throughout this show from time to time. Uh, I'll throw another one in there uh, because I really wanted to just dive into what, why I created this show instead of giving you my favorite movies, which, you know, I had talked about Star Trek and 2001. Those don't quite fit into the types of movies that I'm generally going to be talking about on this show. Uh, so I thought, you know, I'm just going to just barrel right in there and and start. So this is kind of the uh, the first official episode that uh, is going to be dealing with, with why I really started the show. Uh, so if you like these movies, uh, or if you're interested in these movies, then you've come to the right place, because I'm going to be talking about all things exploitation and fantasy, sci-fi, hard-to-find, um, obscure movies that you've never heard of or that you have you may have heard of but didn't even know were available anymore and they might not even be available anymore. Um, but um, I'm going to start, I thought I'd start today's show with, um, with a couple movies that, that most people have heard of, the producer of these movies, and some of you may have actually seen these movies. They are readily available on Blu-ray and I believe that a couple of them, if not all of them right now, are on Netflix too. So I highly recommend watching them. They're a blast. A total blast. They completely fall in the exploitation category. They, um, especially when you hear the name Roger Corman, immediately you think, okay, well, here we go. Now now I know kind of what level we're going to be on with, uh, with the movie that's going to be discussed. Because Roger Corman has a... He's he's kind of had this knack for very very low budget exploitation. Or back in the day, back in the '60s, he was doing some really cool uh, Edgar Allan Poe stuff and uh, really really some good gothic horror. Kind of trying to emulate Hammer. I don't think that he I don't think he can touch Hammer Pictures, the the UK production company, which I'm going to be t- discussing Hammer movies in depth in upcoming episodes. But uh, for now, I, I'd really like to start this this show off with Roger Corman because he emulates everything that is so great about the uh, the low budget exploitation genre, especially the three that I have picked out to talk about. Now, if I run out of time, I'm going to go in order of my favorite of the, this this threesome that I've got here to my least favorite. I like them all. But uh, if I do run out of time, then I'll just continue on the next episode with, with the last one. But I at least wanted to make sure that I got the first two in. And those are some science fiction movies. The third one is more of a creature feature with some sci-fi elements, but it's more of a creature feature. Uh, but the first two are flat-out science fiction, but science fiction done the Roger Corman way. And... Um, You'll know what I mean once you see these movies. What's cool about Roger Corman and his his production company, especially back in the day, is um, it it was almost like 
he was doing what Lloyd Kaufman and Troma are doing now. Uh, they don't pay their workers squat, but they give talented people an opportunity to cut their chops and prove what they've got. And now I'm rabbit trailing, but but because I brought up Troma, I do want to say um, for all the hate that Troma gets, uh, you know, if you if you look back, even recently. Lloyd Kaufman brought the world Jamie Gunn. And if you know who he is, he uh, is now official A-list director. Uh, he did uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And before that, he did Slither. Um, those were his two big, bigger uh, mainstream releases, obviously. Um, but he was introduced to the world of trauma uh, through Lloyd Kaufman. He, that's where he got his start. Same with Eli Roth. Um, there's a lot of people actually that got their start in trauma pictures. So that's a rabbit trail. And that's actually a discussion for another time, another episode, because I could talk about trauma movies and trauma studios for numerous episodes for hours. Uh, not that their movies are great. A couple of them are really good, but, uh, how they do things is what impresses me so much. And their true independent nature. Well, Roger Corman had that same knack. And probably still does. I, I believe that he still does a lot of stuff, but a lot of the stuff that he does is more for the sci-fi channel. And to me, I would I would take a trauma movie over uh, one of those crappy sci-fi channel movies any day. Uh, but back in the day, he introduced uh, the world to a lot of up-and-coming great directors and actors and people that are now A-listers. Uh, obviously, James Cameron is one of the biggest ones. Joe Dante, um, Robert Englund... Uh, the list goes on and on. Rob Bottin helped out doing some special effects. And, a and, and uh, some of the people that I mentioned there are actually, they actually had uh, parts or they helped out in the movies that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, so anyway, uh, well, let's get started. So uh, the first two that I'm going to talk about, uh, they go kind of hand in hand because a lot of the sets were reused. Um, some of the actors, I believe, were also incorporated into both of these. So if you watch them fairly close together, uh, you're going to see the same sets, but uh, that doesn't that doesn't say that the storylines are the same. They're not. They're actually quite different. Um, the the two that I'm going to talk about. The first one is called Forbidden World, and I love 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 this movie. It's uh, it's a blast. It's everything that you would want from a sleazy Roger Corman sci-fi horror movie. It's got copious amounts of nudity, uh, copious amounts of gooey, icky, gross gore, and it's only 77 minutes long, which is a story in and of itself, which I will be sharing here just shortly. Um, the Blu-ray is available. Highly recommend you pick it up if you're an exploitation fan, because I've watched this movie numerous times, and I never get tired of it. But I'm just going to start by saying the, the Blu-ray actually comes in um, a two-disc set. And the two-disc set, that's what makes this so interesting, is the Blu-ray itself has the theatrical version, which is the 77-minute cut. However, it also includes the director's cut, which is 82 minutes long. So it's actually five minutes longer, but it's only on DVD, and the quality is VHS-level quality because it's been long considered lost. Um, so here's where it gets interesting the the director's cut is uh, the stuff that was cut out of that was more of what makes 
the theatrical version so good. Uh, Roger Corman wanted to play this serious, and when the movie was screened for an audience, um, he was in attendance with the director, Alan Holzman, and people were laughing at the movie. And he got so mad, he actually slapped an audience member on the head for laughing at the film. Um, so, and I'm just reading some of the, some of the notes here that I made. When uh, when Roger Corman left the theater, uh, the guy poured soda all over his head from the balcony. Uh, so yeah, so there's there's that. But anyway, so here's here's why the that footage was cut was because people were laughing at it, and he didn't want it. He didn't think it was funny. Well. That's what makes the movie so good is because it's so cheesy and corny and silly. And um, so he took all of that, not all of it, because the movie is ridiculous no matter how much you cut out of it. But he tried to take out as much of the silliness as he could to make it more um, serious, I guess. But all it did was just shorten the movie. That's all it is. I mean, everything in it is silly. Uh, But anyway, that's the whole story there as far as the two different versions of the movie. You're not going to want to watch the the director's cut because the quality is so poor. Uh, but it is certainly hilarious. But the director's cut, or I mean, I'm sorry, the the theatrical version has all the gore in it and the nudity, and the storyline is still there, and it's great. And as I said, 77 minutes long, which means this thing moves at a lightning pace, and it's something that you would expect to see at one o'clock in the morning on Cinemax or something like that back in the day. But um, it, just a brief synopsis of the movie. Uh, the uh, the the lead the lead star on this movie. Actually, I'm going to read the back of the the movie here. Um, on the planet Zarbia, an experimental life form known as Subject Twenty has been created by an elite group of scientists in the hopes of preventing a major galactic food crisis. However, instead of prolonging life. Subject 20 is destroying it, and the man-eating organism poses a double threat because it constantly changes its genetic structure. Bounty hunter Mike Colby is called in to investigate, but soon suspects that the scientists are keeping something from him, and he discovers why. Subject 20 is half-human. So there you go. And also on the back here, it says, From the man that introduced us to Jack Nicholson, Francis Ford Coppola, Jonathan Demme, and Martin Scorsese. And that is true. Thank you, Roger Corman. Uh, so, anyway, our fearless leader of the movie uh, has... Uh, the beginning of the movie is just great. He's actually in this spaceship with uh, this robot, and they're evading these galactic bad guys uh, a la Stormtroopers from Star Wars. And that was completely lifted from another movie that Roger Corman had made, and I think that it's Battle Beyond the Stars is, I think, the movie that that scene was lifted from. But... The special effects are actually quite well done, but it you can tell it's totally from a different movie. Um, but anyway, so this guy goes to the planet, and uh, there's a group of of silly actors and uh, scantily clad women, and uh, they go about uh, all sorts of stupidity trying to stop this mutating creature that is gooey and gory and gross, and uh, it's just great. Uh, so... Uh, I, I just I wanted to give the movie some props because they truly don't make movies like this anymore. And if they do, they're garbage that's on Sci-Fi Channel and they're filled with, with lazy CGI straight from the PlayStation 1 days. And, uh, and I want to say inept acting because the acting here is not good either by any stretch of the imagination. 
But something about it is just so much fun. And everybody in it is really trying. Um, again, this is the uh, the lower budget version of of the uh, the next movie that I'll talk about later, which that one actually had a bigger budget. Uh, and I, like I said, the same sets. But this is a, a lower budget version or a, a smaller budget. Not near as much time to get this thing made. Um, and that's okay because there was a lot of ingenuity that went into into the making of this movie. Uh, so all sorts of crazy shenanigans go on in this. Uh, a character might end up getting killed and all of a sudden two of the female actresses are uh, giving each other a, a sponge bath. Because that's what you do when someone gets brutally, gruesomely ripped to shreds by an alien mutant thing. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway... So just looking through some of my notes here, one one thing that I thought was really cool was one of the actors. He's not a big he's not a big actor or anything, but um, if you really look closely, you can actually recognize him. Uh, his name is Michael Bowen, and he was a lab tech. Uh, his name is Jimmy in the movie, but he actually went on to play Buck in uh, Kill Bill Volume One, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill movie. And if you know Kill Bill, you'll know who Buck is. But he actually has a, a side a side role in this movie, a small a small role, I, I should say. And um, needless to say, he doesn't last that long. But it's it's fine. It's it's great. Um, so anyway, um, so just looking through some more of the notes here. Um, the uh, there's some really good miniatures on the movie that uh that for for the budget is really really good. This is a complete and total ripoff of Alien with a group of people trapped in an enclosed environment and there's an alien out to get him and in fact the alien sort of resembles HR uh, Geiger's alien from the Alien movies kind of but trust me it's it's low rent through and through low rent. Um so uh also of of note is the hallways in the movie in this in this laboratory on this planet uh, are are decorated with styrofoam sandwich boxes from a fast food joint and if you don't really notice it it just kind of blends in it looks science fictiony whatever but if you do look you're like that looks like egg cartons and styrofoam whopper cases that are glued to the wall and it's hilarious. Um, some of the animals that were in the laboratory uh, were, because again, the special effects were actually fairly well done and gruesome. Some of the animals in there were actually dead animals that were brought brought in by the local pound. So, and that's the kind of low budget filmmaking that I I love. In fact, one of the movies that that uh, that I made, Primal, we actually went to the local butcher shop and got a big bucket of cow guts or pig guts or whatever and it's quite effective and it's free and that's the sign of independent filmmaking right there um you'll notice if you if you watch the end credits uh the name jim wynorski comes up and uh more than likely if you're interested in this type of movie you probably know the name jim wynorski um do a search for him, and you'll be like, oh, that guy. They actually made a feature-length documentary on him. He's done um, Chopping Mall and I think the Bear Wench Project um, and numerous other 
horrible, horrible movies, yet he just churns them out one after the other. And he's still working, and he's... It's interesting to hear... Like, his documentary is great, and it's interesting to see how he does things, and he comes from the school of of Roger Corman. So, uh, anyway, he he was one of the story writers on the movie. And um, uh, some of the other notes that I have here are spoilerish. So, if you are interested in watching the movie, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, a couple other interesting notes here, and I'm going to move on to the next movie. Um, one of the uh, the studio hands provided the noise of the mutant by cramming a microphone down her throat and to make the noise. And um, again, low budget ingenuity at its finest. I love it. So anyway, Forbidden World. It's a great movie. It's cheesy. It's fun. Pour yourself a stiff drink. Uh, pop it in. It's only 77 minutes long. Never boring. Um, it's softcore, gore, comedy, you name it. It's fun, and I like it a lot. In fact, I might go watch it again here in the next couple of days. Moving on. Galaxy of Terror is the second movie that I'm going to touch on real quick. And Galaxy of Terror is... Um, is the bigger budget cousin of Forbidden World. This was made before Forbidden World. And um, all sorts of great things to talk about with this with this crazy thing. And uh, by saying bigger budget, whatever, it's still not a good movie. In fact, I prefer Forbidden World over this. Not that this isn't good. It is. It's actually quite good. It has a really good story. Um, uh, Bruce Clark, the director... Uh, He's inter- actually interesting to, to listen to on The Making of Galaxy of Terror. He's talking about his experiences with the movie. Um, this is a little bit more science fiction-y than Forbidden World. Forbidden World is more horror-tinged. This one here is more science fiction-tinged, I guess. Um, the biggest thing to note on this movie, biggest, biggest thing, is James Cameron had, uh, had his hand on this movie. Um, he did the production design... Um, and Bill Paxton, who worked as a set decorator uh, before later collaborating with Cameron in front of the camera as an actor. So I think that's so cool. Again, those are A-listers right there that that cut their chops on a Roger Corman movie. Um, but obviously James Cameron is nowhere to be found on the special features of this movie. But it's cool to... to it, now that you know that he had his hand in the production design, the production design of the movie is actually very, very good for such a low-budget movie. Um, these movies were made for, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're not talking millions, but probably several hundred thousand dollars. And back uh, back when these things were made, which was 1980, 81, 82, that's a pretty substantial amount of money for a very low-budget movie that they had to bang out in all of a week or two because um, these things were shot so fast, done with so few takes. It was just go, 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 work 24 hours a day, do whatever it takes to, to, to nail this out because it's all about making money. That's That was what Roger Corman was all about, make money. And we make money by not paying people well and working long hours. And um, the thing is, it worked for him. Uh, he's got a name for himself. And when you have to do that, when you're forced to to go, go, go and be as inventive as you possibly can and not just, hey, here's 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 our $50 million budget movie and $5 million can go to special effects. That's great, and you're going to get great special effects, but something about, hey, here's our $250,000 movie, you've got $10,000 worth of, worth of uh, budget to go to special effects, and this movie is special effects intensive. 
um, that's where you have to get creative. Um, on top of James Cameron being involved in this movie, the special effects, um, uh, I believe in this movie, um, Rob Bottin had his hand on the special effects in this thing. And Rob Bottin had going on to, he well, again, if you're listening to this show, you probably know who Rob Bottin is. Rob Bottin went on to have his hand in uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. And that's kind of what basically sealed the deal for him. Um, now, don't quote me on on the uh, the special effects, because I know that Rob Bottin uh, did the special effects for Humanoids of the Deep, and that's actually the third movie that I was going to touch on. I'm not sure if I'm going to have enough time today, but I know that Rob Bottin did the special effects for that, and I thought that he did the special effects, at least some of them, for Galaxy of Terror. Uh, so if I am wrong, I apologize, but um, regardless, Rob Bottin is in, in the uh, Roger Corman canon. So Galaxy of Terror, I'm going to quick read what this movie's about. The mind's innermost fears become reality for the crew members of the quest when they land on the barren planet Morgathus, hoping to find the missing crew members of the starship Remus, only to discover something deadly waiting for them. Each member of the rescuing team must come face to face with their darkest fears or perish. The cast on board the quest includes Edward Albert, the house where evil dwells, Aaron Moran, Happy Days, Ray Walston, I think we all know him, who he is. He was from My Favorite Martian. Robert Englund, of course, Nightmare on Elm Street. He's Freddy Krueger. Um, and Sid Haig. Sid Haig is great. I love Sid Haig. He was in House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects. Um, and he's actually been in some A-list stuff, too. He was in T- uh, George Lucas's THX 1138. Uh, he's just been in a ton of movies. He was in Foxy Brown. Um a great character actor, especially playing a despicable, gross scumbag. He is great at playing scumbags. Um, in this movie, he's actually a good guy. Um, and th- there's been some talk about his his dialogue. He didn't want to uh, he didn't want to say any dialogue because he thought the script was so poor. Um, uh, so he wanted to play a mute instead with almost no dialogue. Uh, he doesn't utter a single thing in the whole movie. Which is, I think, kind of funny. Um, so, anyway, he didn't want to talk, so he didn't talk. But the movie was originally rated X by the MPAA. Surprise, surprise. Um, so, there was some scenes that were cut for the R rating, obviously the Blu-ray. And I believe the version that's on Netflix is fully uncut. It's only 81 minutes long. And now, you know, this was made in 1981. And so, the stuff on there that, that uh, even the uncut version, like when you watch it, it's like, really? That's... That's R-rated, I guess. It's not like things now where uh, I always go to the, the Saw movies as being completely gratuitous, uh, gruesome movies. Um, it's they're so over the top, gory and gross. And those, for the most, even the R-rated cuts in the theater are just so gross, way worse than any of these things. Um, however, this movie does have one showstopper that is in such incredible poor taste that it has to be seen. In fact, it's the reason to watch the movie. Um, basically, th- th- this group of of space explorers, they battle their deepest, darkest fears on this planet that they that they come to. And it's got a r- extremely cheesy 80s cheesy ending, which is great. But but these these the crew members are being killed off by things that they're most scared of and one of the women is scared of uh, of worms. And there's a scene in this movie where there's a giant worm and there's this lady 
and things happen, and it is so nasty and gross and in poor taste. And that thing there, I can see why that one got hacked to bits. Uh, however, it is uh, it is back to being, for the most, I think most of that scene is back in this version. And, uh, oh, you'll know it when you see it. It's, it's quite something. Um, so, anyway... Uh, and, and in fact, the lady, the, the actress, uh, Taff O'Connell, I believe is her name, she actually used a body double for the scene in that movie because it's, it's, it's hardcore. So she used a body double in that. Ha ha. Um, uh, so anyway, um, looking through some of my other notes here. Um, James Cameron got maggots to, to wiggle on a severed arm by sending an electric current through it. Um, and that actually impressed the producers enough that um, it got James Cameron on to his next job. And his next job, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, or at least his first directing gig, was Piranha 2, The Spawning. And that was in 1982. So I'm pretty certain that after this, he went on to make Piranha 2, which is a complete episode in and of itself talking about how that thing went down. Because, as many of you may know, James Cameron was fired from that movie. Yes, Mr. James Cameron was fired from uh, Italian producer uh, Damien Damiani, I believe. Um, anyway, that's... I don't want to get into that. That's going to be a... I don't want to rabbit trail into that one because that movie is is just... You have to see it to believe it. But it's, it's cool. Um, anyway, Galaxy of Terror. So... Um, we get our explorers uh, tromping around this barren wasteland of a planet and getting killed off um, with with uh, special effects that are quite ambitious for the time. Um, the film went into production in 1981, and it was actually made at a lumber company. And I do I do remember uh, watching the making of. Um, they actually talked about about that that it was. Um, by a lumber company where it was made. And it's that's just interesting that it was made in a lumber company. Uh, so anyway, um, matte paintings are used, miniatures are done in camera, and it works so much better than low-rent CGI, in my opinion. Um, now, I am seeing here that the budget of this movie was $700,000. That is fairly significant. I do know that the budget of Forbidden World was way less. And I want to say that Forbidden World was maybe $200,000, and that's tops. Um, Dave Decodier, I want to bring up his name real quick. Uh, Dave Decodier got his first job on, uh, on this movie. And he worked as a production assistant on the film. He was 18 years old. Now... You may not know who that guy is, but I highly urge you to, to do a search on IMDb and see the list of movies that this guy has made. They may not be good or or high-dollar high movies, but he has made so many movies. His most recent one is called 90210 Shark Attack. So those are the types of movies that he makes. They're, they're sci-fi original deals, but he pumps them out one after the other after the other. And, um, so I commend him for the, you know, he got him, he got himself, he found his niche and he does it. And Hey, I'd, I'd love to be making, even if it would be for the sci-fi channel, I'd love to be making movies one after the other, after the other, uh, like that. So anyway, uh, Robert Englund, by the way, in, uh, his, uh, pre Freddy Krueger days, he actually does pretty good. The acting is, is relatively okay for this type of thing. 
Um, but it's just cool to see uh, a somewhat in 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 good shape young Robert Englund being chased by Lord knows what in the movie. Um, so anyway, this one here uh, features some pretty good special effects, and um, it's it's a fun movie. Not quite as fun as Forbidden World, although you, the listener, might enjoy it a little bit more because it's not as... Uh, it's more. It, it, it depends on what you like. If you go for more science fiction, you'd probably like that one more. If you go more for the horror end of things, you'd probably go with Forbidden World. Um, you know, I'm going to just keep right on rolling here because I'm having so much fun talking about this stuff uh, that I am going to hit on the third movie. And the third movie is uh, Humanoids from the Deep. And this movie also has a a very interesting past. Um, This is a Roger Corman movie, again. 82 minutes long, made in 1980. Um, And I do know for a fact that this one here, Robotine did work on. Directed by Barbara Peters. And I'm going to talk about her involvement in this movie in a little bit. uh, And how that all went down. But I'm going to just read the back of of the... of the movie here on the on Blu-ray, um, this is the completely uncut version because this is another one that was severely cut. Um, something evil is happening in the sleepy fishing village of Noya. Fish-like human creatures, spawned by mutant DNA, begin rising from the ocean, looking to mate with the local women, and mate they do. Scientist Susan Drake, along with local fisherman Jim Hill seek to investigate the cause of this invasion of creatures from the ocean floor. But when the annual salmon festival begins, some unwanted guests are about to crash the festivities. Also starring Vic Moreau. And Vic Moreau, do a search. You'll, he's been in tons of stuff. Cindy Weitrub, which was, she was in The Prowler, which is a slasher movie. Um, I am positive I'm going to be hitting on that movie uh, at a later date because that's a great slasher movie. Uh, and um, uh, another one that I'm not even going to try to pronounce because it really doesn't matter. Um, film features and an early score by Academy Award-winning composer James Horner. Uh, he composed Avatar, Braveheart, Titanic, and Humanoids from the Deep. Rob Botin, and he did special effects for RoboCop, The Thing, Seven, Total Recall, amongst others. The creatures are are man in rubber suit type stuff, but they are really good. Uh, they are really good for a low budget movie. And uh, here's what's interesting about this movie is uh, the gruesomeness in the movie. And it is a gory movie. We're not filmed by Barbara Peters at all. They were filmed from, uh, I'm not sure if Roger Corman actually was the one that, that filmed it. Um, but she, uh, let's see here. I'm just looking here. Yeah, he fired Roger Corman. Fired her and hired another director to shoot additional footage. Um, so she didn't want the the uh, the more the gruesome stuff and the rape scenes because there are rape scenes in the movie. She didn't want to go that route, and he did. And he's Roger Corman, and he does what he wants. So she got fired, and she was replaced, and they filmed the stuff that made this movie so notorious. And um. In, in all honesty, he did the right thing. Uh, he knew what was going to sell this movie, and she wasn't willing to do it, so he did what 
a good producer should do. He's like, this is my movie and my money, and if you don't want to do it, all right, that's that's fine. Um, but uh, this movie's going to make money one way or another, and we need to have this stuff in it. And so he did it, and I, it's it's a cult classic because of uh, because of that stuff. Um, so anyway, um, production values for the for such a low budget are are actually pretty good. Like I said, the creatures are good. Um, I actually watched this movie with some friends several years back, and we all enjoyed it. It's one of those things. All these movies are are they're fun to watch alone, but there's also something about watching with a group of people where you sit back and you laugh with them, you laugh at them, you make fun of them, you go, ugh, gross. That's what makes these movies so much fun. Um, they're not to be taken serious. They're just they're quick, fast, cheap, and fun. Um, so anyway, it, it, uh, everything accumulates. I'm not, I'm going to try not to give too many spoilers, but, uh, the end does get, um, pretty crazy. They end up at, um, at an amusement park and all sorts of crazy humanoid from the deep shenanigans transpire there. There's a little twist ending, uh, that, uh, leads you to believe that it's not, it's not over yet, but you know, it's. What what cheesy old school horror movie doesn't do something like that? So the the production for the movie it was originally supposed to be called Beneath the Darkness, and and that was in the hopes that it would try to to attract a bigger, uh, a more diverse crowd and more like more of a classy type creature feature. Um, but instead, it went humanoids from the deep, and of course that title works so much better. <laughs> um, uh, looking through some of my other notes here, I don't want to get too hung up on. I liked, I actually like the science fiction movies better than this one, but this one here is still, uh, this one here is still a blast. Um, oh, and Joe Dante actually, uh, he was, uh, he was asked to direct this movie because he had directed Prana in 1978, uh, obviously a Roger Corman movie. Uh, he actually di- turned down directing this movie, which surprises me actually. I know that Dante. Uh, he had a, a fairly brief run of being kind of an A-list actor. Um, and I, maybe that was the reason that he turned this gig down, because, I mean, Joe Dante has done some some big stuff. Uh, but it's unfortunate that he didn't direct it, because I think that it would have even been better than it is now had he done that. Because Piranha is a... While Piranha is a, obviously a, a Jaws ripoff, and, and everybody in the making of that movie have said that's we're making this movie to cash in on jaws but it actually that piranha is one of the more classy roger corman productions of the uh late 70s early 80s there's a lot of a lot of uh a merit to that movie in fact that movie is good enough that it is it has spawned ripoffs of it um of of that movie itself which is kind of cool uh in fact on my sister's show uh movie freaks which you can find us online. Please do uh, MF Pod uh, on uh, on YouTube, and you can also email us at moviefreakspod at yahoo.com. Uh, so just throwing that out there, wanting to make sure that our listeners here also know that there's another show out there that we hit on similar movies. I'm mo- I'm focusing more on just a couple movies, an episode where we touch on all sorts of movies and we go all over the place. Here, I'm trying to to laser focus on just 
two, maybe three movies at a time. But anyway, um, on that show, we actually talked about uh, the movie Slugs from 19, I think 1988, from J.P. Simone. He he went on to do pieces. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's Spanish director. He's no longer with us. But he went on to do, uh, he did Slugs. I love the movie Slugs. And Slugs is a, it, to me, Slugs is a complete ripoff of Piranha, which was a ripoff of Jaws. And I think that's so cool. So there you go. Slugs is uh, the ugly stepchild of uh, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, in my opinion. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's rabbit trailing. Uh, and we do that all the time on, uh, on Movie Freaks. So anyway... Uh, that's going to do it for the Humanoids of the Deep review. I like all three of them, but I like all three of them in the order that I that I talked about them. Forbidden World is my favorite. Galaxy is second, and then Humanoids is, is third. Uh, but they're all gems. They're all uh, in, the, in the Roger Corman vaults. They're all top-tier stuff, in my opinion. Um, he's made so many movies, or he's been involved in so many movies that obviously there's there's total duds in there, but uh, as with any production company, in my opinion, I think that there are gems in the rough. Uh, and that might even go for Asylum. I have a feeling that there's probably one or two Asylum movies out there that are that are fairly watchable. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've seen them, though, but there probably are. Um, so, that's Humanoids of the Deep, or From the Deep. Um, I think that's going to do it for this show. Um, I, I was hoping that I could get at least three in. Um... Watch the movies. If if you're not into buying them on Blu-ray, which I do highly recommend buying them on Blu-ray, the not just for the movies themselves, but the the special the special features on there are really really good and and lengthy. They really go into the makings of these movies and and the time period that they were shot in, and I love that. Um, just movies aren't made now like they were back then, and I think that that's why these movies are are just gems in the rough and they don't they don't have the feel now that they did back then um a lot of hard work went into this type of movie and i love that uh, and also with these blu-rays there's a really there's really good booklets that are included in these that that give some information on the movies um but regardless I, they should be on netflix one way or another check them out they're fun they're funny um if if you're not a fan of serious horror good these aren't serious horror movies. These are jokey, junky, zero calorie trash. And I love them. And I love that type of movie. Um, so, uh, in conclusion, watch the movies. Uh, next episode, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to touch on. Although, uh, Italian horror is is fast approaching for this show. And not, not the uh, Italian horror that you might be used to hearing about... Um, you know, if you're a fan of, of this type of movie, you've more than likely you've seen Lucio Fulci's Zombie or The Beyond or uh, House uh, House by the Cemetery and his more well-known works or Dario Argento's uh, Suspiria and Deep Red and um, Inferno, uh, Tenebrae. That, those, those are their more mainstream movies. I want to hit on some of them, and I, I might even touch on some of those, but I want to hit on on some of those directors and other directors, movies that are not as uh, not as seen, but are still great movies. And um, I mean, and there's there's a couple gems in there that uh, that are 
are not just like, oh, they're that's that's gory and cool and seventies, but are actually very well made and have really really good stories to them, uh, and which I think is great. Uh, Dario Argento had his Animal trilogy from from the early seventies, and he was Europe's answer to Alfred Hitchcock, um, and that might be hard to believe until you've seen some of his early Jalo movies very much. And we're not talking gruesome violence or anything, but they're very much, they, they actually do have an Alfred Hitchcock feel to them. And that's what he was going for. And he made a name for himself. And because of what he was doing, Lucio Fulci came into the fold and he started uh, doing the same thing. And Fulci has a couple of fantastic early seventies Jalos that, that are not nearly as well known as his zombie and beyond and city of the living dead and stuff like that. Um, don't torture a duckling is one of them. And, um, um, uh, lizard in a woman's skin is another. And those two movies are so good. Um, highly recommend them. And I'm, again, I'm rabbit trailing. I'm going to get into those at, in a later episode. I, I want to rewatch them though. Uh, but that's just a tease for a coming episode here in the near future. So, uh, and on top of that, some of the other movies that I, I talked about tonight, like I brought up The Prowler, definitely going to be hitting on The Prowler, uh, and other other slasher movies that um, that are not Friday the 13th, uh, and that are not Halloween, and that are not Friday the th- or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I want to hit on some slasher movies that are, uh, are almost the equal to quality to those movies, but ones that you may not have heard of or seen. And Prowler is a great example of an early 80s slasher that is, uh, that holds its own and, uh, that, that doesn't have the recognition that Friday the 13th does. Um, Prom Night's another one, Terror Train, there's, the list goes on and on and on, and I could keep right on, on rambling, but I'm going to wrap things up. So, uh, I appreciate you listening to my, movie ramblings. I appreciate you uh, you enjoying this type of movie because if you're listening to this show, I'm guessing you like this movie. And if you don't, you at least like cinema. And that's a good thing. That's a great thing, actually, because we need more of us out there that truly appreciate all sorts of cinema, not just the big budget, what's coming out next weekend type of movies, but movies that are, are hidden gems and, and movies that are almost forgotten. Um, there's some great stuff out there. Uh, and not just not just exploitation stuff from the 80s, but we're talking back in the, you know, I want to say 50s, 60s, 70s. There's some great stuff that has yet to be discovered by a lot of people. Uh, even myself, there's a lot of movies that I haven't seen that uh, that I'm hoping to discover as the years go, go on. So I love movies, and um, I hope you love movies as much as I do. So anyway, that's going to do it for this, this show. Um, Cinema's Soft Underbelly. You can email me right now. I still just have my personal email address that I'm going to throw out there, and that's eugene-weaver at hotmail.com. So please email me with any questions that you may have or suggestions. If you liked the show, great. If you didn't like the show, great. Let me know either way. I I appreciate it. And uh, I've got some friends out there doing podcasts as well, Cinema Sidekicks. You can find them on iTunes. And uh, my sister show, Movie Freaks. Uh, you can find us on uh, YouTube, and there, I would guess coming soon we're going to be on iTunes as well, uh, but that is a work in progress. So that's going to do it. I'm Eugene Weaver. Thanks again for listening to me, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.